a colleague and I were were sleeping out under the stars rather than under our little tarp. And I woke up to the feeling of, of like a, a dog sniffing my head and I just kind of thought and I had to do a little sense making at the moment of like, well, that's not a dog. It couldn't be a dog. And I just shot up. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. Hey folks, hope you had a good weekend. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Uh, Today we're going to be talking to guest Ben Morton about doing a first descent of a river in Bhutan. And Ben is a very talented uh, paddle sport enthusiast. He does guiding trips and trips all over the world, so I do want to plug that. You can find more about him at precisionpaddlesports.com. It just seems like a great teacher, a great guide, and does some pretty cool stories. But this trip in particular was really unique for him, so we're we're going to be focusing on the details of that trip later in the episode. Um, but I also wanted to say this 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 recommendation, having been on the show, was from a listener suggestion. Uh, Eric Barden, a listener, reached out to us with some contact info and said, "Hey, you should have this guy I know, Ben Morton, on on your show." And if you don't know, that's how we primarily get guests for this show is listener recommendations or folks reach out to us. So if you know anybody, please reach out. You can send an email to info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And uh, that's just, and that's how we've gotten to 700 episodes is folks reaching out and sending us suggestions. So thanks, Eric. And thanks, Ben, for being on the show. And uh, when we start the episode, I had already asked Ben, uh, hey, what, what, where are you from? What did you grow up doing? And so he's in the middle of answering that question. So without further ado, here is the episode. Well, you know, Mason, I grew up in rural Virginia, so um, a really small county, Orange, Virginia, which is kind of tucked right up against the Blue Ridge Mountains. And so it's uh, really beautiful. I, I really wasn't into, you know, um, adventure sports, uh, but more traditional sport. And so while like my buddies and I would goof off on the river during the summertime, like tubing and swimming, uh, most of my time was spent, you know, trying out traditional sports. And eventually I kind of gravitated towards uh, soccer. And so I ended up like really getting into that heavily and, uh, um, and yeah, it, I, I think it wasn't until I was a teenager that, you know, my mom started to, uh, get into doing some recreational kayaking and because they, because my mom had a couple around, my brother and I started to dabble, but it wasn't something that particularly interested me at, at the time. Oh, interesting. So, so what made your mom get into it? Yeah, you know, it was, you know, really interesting. My, my mom is a, an amazing person, but she was, I think sometime, you know, I, I don't know if it was a midlife crisis, what what initiated it, but she started going with a friend over to the New River Gorge in West Virginia and doing a lot of rafting and, and camping out. And uh, at the time she was like, well, whitewater kayaking is not my deal, but, you know, just some general recreational kayaking on in a more mellow environment is totally something that she was interested in. So 
uh, I think that kind of seeing other people kayaking was what started it off. And then once she got into it, uh, she, she really got bit by the bug. Oh man. So she was bit and you were a teenager, but it took you a while to get into it. But you know, it's something I'm sure you never thought would become such a big part of what you do. Uh, when did you, when did you start to get bit by the bug? It was really interesting. I mean, I, I don't know how interesting, interesting for me that I, I kind of pursued soccer as heavily as I could for a long time. And, you know, when it came to going to college, I just, like, I, I wasn't quite at the level that I wanted to be to play, wanted to go. And so I, um, I just kind of had this kind of moment where I stepped back and was like, well, I think I'm going to like walk away from soccer, at least being competitive. And so I was just lost. And I had no sense of what I wanted to study or anything of the sort. But, you know, here comes mom again saying, hey, you know, I, I meet these young folks over in West Virginia that study outdoor education as, you know, as a major in college. And I, I couldn't wrap my mind around it, but I just, you know, I didn't I had no idea. But I was like, oh, that sounds great. I want to do it. But uh, but then kind of came into like trying to unpack and figure out what exactly is, you know, outdoor education and adventure sports. And so uh, I knew at that moment I was, uh, I was enjoying being outside and, you know, my a friend and I started taking my mom's kayaks out more frequently. And at some point in that moment or in that time frame, my mom was like, you know, Ben, you're, you're taking these kayaks out on rivers that probably aren't suitable for the kayaks. Like maybe you should consider getting a whitewater kayak and taking a class. And, uh, and so that sent me down to, to Fredericksburg, Virginia, where I, I took a kind of like a evening class from a, a guy that was going to college there at Mary Washington. And, uh, and as soon as I got on the water with that guy, he was, he was charismatic. He was a very skilled kayaker. I was immediately told myself, I want to do what that guy's doing. And so from, from that moment, moment moving forward, I just kind of, stayed heavily into kayaking and then branched off into other adventure sports as well. Wow. That's awesome. So, so, so did you end up studying that field like outdoor recreation and uh, just kind of advancing in that through college? Yeah. So I ended up like in that time frame. I, I had taken a, a gap year after I finished high school. And so that was where I just started going off on all these kind of micro adventures with a buddy of mine. And we were just you know, unconsciously incompetent. Like we had no idea what we, what we knew and what we didn't know. And so, uh, in that time we were going out kayaking, we were going out on hiking trips. Uh, and then my mom and I were going to a climbing gym in Charlottesville, Virginia, like twice a week. And so I was, I was getting a sense of a variety of outdoor activities and I was getting just really excited. And, uh, and so in that gap year, I also saved up my money and was able to participate in a, uh, North Carolina Outward Bound Outdoor Leader course. And that's really kind of what sealed the deal. That helped give me a, a small foundation of formal, you know, outdoor education experience. Uh, and I just, uh, I, after I left that, I was like, this is totally what I want to do. I'm, I'm absolutely sure of it. And so I ended up going to Garrett College in Western Maryland and uh, studying adventure sports and leadership and just accumulating a lot of great experiences and just getting inundated with all sorts of ideas and excitement for trips and things that I could do in the future. Man, that's really cool because 
you know, we talked to a lot of people on this show that, uh, you know, they're trying to make a, a career out of what they love to do. It's really challenging, you know, if there's not a market for it or there's no, you know, not necessarily knowing how to do that, whether it's through guiding or what. Um, in the world of kayaking and, and through kind of the knowledge and, and what you were gaining, how are you seeing that path like unfold? Was it through guiding or was it through, uh, you know, something else within kayaking? What, what, what did you see and what were you being taught to look for? Well, I think, you know, I've, I've been kind of told the narrative that so many people are told that, you know, you're, you can go out and, and work in the field for a while, but at some point, you know, you're going to need to step into a more administrative role. And, you know, there's very few jobs to make a career in the outdoor field. And I guess I just kind of accepting of it, but I was just like, well, I'm going to enjoy my time when I'm out in the field and working. Uh, but what I just kind of gathered through, through the years is like, I, it's a puzzle. It's an absolute puzzle to, to piece together your ideal job um, or your ideal career. But every year it got easier where I feel like at the beginning, I was like paying, you know, employers to get the opportunity to work for them. And then after I got my foot in the door, you know, being able to demonstrate a work ethic, a skill set, an attitude, what have you, then all of a sudden, you know, more opportunities came up where I was being paid rather than paying to get the opportunity to work. And so I tried to check my ego whenever um, an opportunity came up and just said, hey, if this if this feels right, you know, go for it, regardless of whether or not you're going to get paid, you know, and uh, I just figured that accumulating that really diverse and solid foundation of experience would lead to good things. So how, how has that feeling served you looking back however many years now? You know, I've, I guess, you know, I've been, been out there doing it, piecing it together for about 15 or so years. And I, man, I, I tell you, Mason, it, it feels good. I mean, I work in the outdoors. I, I'm not, uh, I'm not rolling in the cash. There's, I always have concerns about uh, whether or not work is going to fill in the gaps each year, but every year it seems to get easier in terms of scheduling and booking courses and workshops. Uh, I think for a long time, it was it was very sustainable for me because I was willing to travel and I was willing to travel anywhere. And so I would hop on a plane or I would drive and I had a very nomadic lifestyle just for work for quite some time. And, you know, now I'm I'm married and, you know, have a daughter and, and we're based here in Vermont. And so I'm I'm less apt to travel. But uh, a good friend told me once, he's like, you know, you just have to keep your foot on the gas pedal because at some point in time, a lot of the people, a lot of your peers or colleagues are going to step away because it gets so challenging. But if you're willing to hang in, like next thing you know, you, you're going to be the name. And I, it feels like that has rung, rung true in a number of ways. And that like, I just get, uh, I get a phone call and someone runs into my name on a website or on a, on a blog. And, and that starts a conversation about a potential work opportunity. And so mm. it's certainly nothing that I'm doing in terms of marketing. I, I'm, I'm off let marketing and social media, but, uh, but yeah, just, uh, <laughs> you're just consistent and the longevity is what you can do, man. I can't tell you the podcasting world's so similar. Like we, we, I'm seeing competing shows or shows that are similar, maybe not competitors necessarily, but 
I'm seeing that happen as well, like shows dropping off or, or quitting, uh, uh, you know, for whatever reason, for good reasons, you know, they, they've yeah. got to move on for sure. whatever reason in life. And it's like, all right, if we can just keep going and keep making this thing happen, eventually we're kind of the only show in town. So people are, people are going to listen. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So you mentioned that you, you know, for a while there, a long time, you were willing to just go anywhere and do anything you know, where were some of the places that kayaking took you? You know, Mason, I, I, you know, I started off there in Virginia and, and then in college as well, I was, you know, kind of in that mid Atlantic region. And so, you know, even in you know my backyard of, you know, West Virginia and, and some of the areas of Virginia and Maryland, you know, I just had some, you know, really amazing experiences, but, um, I also, I mean, I've just been super fortunate. I've, I've been able to, um, for the, for quite a while, I was working in the Rocky mountain West and then the Pacific Northwest, uh, specifically, you know, in Northern California on the salmon river in California and the Southern Oregon and the rogue river, just, you know, the middle fork of the salmon in Idaho, there just some absolutely amazing wow. places to spend time and to, and to, to be able to work. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've been able to work in quite a few states throughout the U.S. And so there's not too many regions in the U.S. that I haven't spent time in, um, fortunately. Uh, but, you know, I've also been really fortunate to travel overseas and to, to do some, teach some courses in, uh, in Europe. Um, I, I've led trips down Costa Rica for about seven years now. And um, I've also been fortunate enough to to go over to Asia and to uh, spend some time in um, Australia and New Zealand. And so it's, yeah, it's been a very rewarding and rich experience thus far and just excited to keep it going. Man, what an adventure. It, was there any place that you got to go to that really, really captured you, really captured your, 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 your heart or, or, or a place that's just its own level in your eyes? You know, I will say that every time I go to New Zealand, I, I say like this, this will be, this could be a place that I could live so easily. Um, and I've got amazing friends there and, but just generally the, the people that I've met there are just, um, so thought sweet. And, uh, and I just love the, the landscape. I just, it's, uh, it, it speaks to me for sure. I've been working in Costa Rica long enough now that the folks that I work with there feel like family. And so, I'm excited to go down there and it, and it is, it feels like another level when I go down there because of this genuine excitement to work with the folks I work with down there. Um, and leading trips just doesn't feel like work. It just feels like play with, uh, with those folks. You know, and, and, and just so folks know, these are, uh, you're, you're going down to these places and you're guiding, you're guiding mostly whitewater or rafting trips and kayaking like guided trips. Is that correct? Yeah, I'd say the the high majority of what I'm doing is is whitewater kayaking. So in whitewater kayak instruction or leading a trip, um, certainly in in New Zealand, my time there has been a lot of it has just been personal personal kayaking with friends. Uh, but I I've had the opportunity to stay at the New Zealand kayak school for an extended period of time and and just shadow and observe and assist in a, a, not a formal working capacity, but just as a opportunity for professional development. Um, and that was a hugely rich experience. 
If you don't mind, I'd love to hear a story about, you know, maybe traveling, going to, with a group to some of these places and where, where something went, um, something was scary for you as a guide or, or as the leader. Uh, maybe not something that went wrong or tragic, but just a time where maybe it just tested your skills. Hmm. You know, I, I worked for, for Knowles for quite a while out in, uh, in Utah, working on the mm-hmm. Green River, going through Desolation Canyon. And there was uh, one particular year, uh, um, a colleague of mine, we, we kind of had this saying that, that Desolation Canyon was trying to kill me. And, uh, and it, was, <laughs> it was due to, um, you know, on two back-to-back trips, we were um, one, one morning, I, you know, I wake up super early in the morning and I went down to our big group kitchen and I start making coffee with my headlamp. And, uh, and then while the coffee is, is being made, I go grab a kayak and drag it down to the river's edge. And then I go visit the groover and then I come back. And at this point, as, as I'm in the kitchen, it, the sun is starting to come up and we start having some students move around and we, you know, I, I kind of from the kitchen, I see some students hanging around a, um, a particular part of the beach and I go down and just see what's up. And they're like, hey, what what kind of prints are these? And they were pretty big size cat print. And we followed them and they were following my footsteps from the time that I was in the kitchen in the morning to the time that I went, took the kayak down to the river's edge. The time I went to the groover, this cat had just been walking behind me, at, you know, at some distance, I'd imagine. But uh, but yeah, just to be... To, to have the, the idea that a, a big cat was stalking me in the, the early morning hours in Utah was uh, was a little startling. And then the following trip, a colleague and I were were sleeping out under the stars rather than in our uh, under our little tarp. And I woke up to the feeling of, of like a, a dog sniffing my head. And I just kind of thought and I had to do a little sense making at the moment of like, well, that's not a dog. It couldn't be a dog. And I just shot up and you know, it, it was a bear that was just checking my head out. And as soon as I shot up, it what? started to run out. So, Holy cow. Are you serious? Right on your head? Right on my head. And so that, that was, uh, at that point, you know, the, the joke was heavily, heavily, uh, enshrined that, that Dessa was, was trying to kill me. Oh my dude. Are you serious? Holy cow. I didn't realize those, you know, like a mountain lion and a bear were down, down in that canyon. That is wild. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, you know, they're certainly around, I, you know, the, the black bear in some areas there, um, can be a real nuisance during the summertime, but, uh, but yeah, uh, this, this was shoulder season. So a lot less traffic going down the river. And so a lot more wildlife down, down and around. And so, yeah. Oh my gosh, man, that is, that is crazier than I expected. And it wasn't even in the water is what was the crazy part. You know, you, no, <laughs> this is in camp. Yeah. This is in camp. You know, I've, I've, you know, I, I feel like I've had a, a number of of challenging situations in the, in the river environment. But, uh, but that's kind of par for the course. I feel like you just, that, that comes with the territory. Another reason that, you know, I just try to stay sharp on the skills and, uh, so that I can react to those situations with somewhat ease. I, I, it's what I strive for at least. Yeah. You're, 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 you're an expert in the water. Um, but you know, there's no book about how to deal with bears at camp sniffing your sniffing your head. <laughs> so, and you just kind of have to rely on instincts at that point and, and do your best. So, speaking of that, how, how have you been able to manage risk over the years in the water? What you know, your views are obviously you get better, you get 
you get more skilled um, in your whitewater abilities. But how do you manage that? Because I I hear a lot of people, especially when they become, you know, know, a parent, uh, a mom or dad, they decide to get out of whitewater just because it's it's so dangerous. How how have you been able to, to stick with it? Well, I, I'd say, you know, professionally, like when I'm working, I, I'd just say that over the years, I've probably just naturally become more conservative. And, and that's based on prior experiences. And then the experiences of, of colleagues of mine that, uh, that just really strike home the, the very real risks involved. And, um, and I think I, I really work hard to, to make decisions that are appropriate for the specific people that I'm working with. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, generally I, I just have a very low tolerance for minor injuries and certainly major injuries. And so I, I do, do what I can to, to manage the risk to avoid those if possible. Um, I know that random things can happen, but, uh, but I really, um, err on the side of, uh, kind of conservative judgment and decision-making at this point. And then for myself, I'm, yes, I, there, there was a time where I, certainly was interested in challenging myself as, you know, as much as I possibly could. But yeah, I, you know, through kind of reevaluating my own interests and desires for the sport, uh, after having a family, it's like, I I still very much love, absolutely love being on the water. Um, but my, my tolerance for, for risk is, is certainly down a, a notch or so. Um, I, I still, like to push myself, but I just find different ways to push myself that, that allow me a, a bit of a buffer so that if I, if I do have a, a slip up or a mishap that the consequences aren't, aren't dying. That's always a good direction to be going <laughs> and yeah, everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I totally get it, man. And that's, you know, I, I'm definitely digging because I, I'm a dad too, and I, I'm seeing my risk tolerance change, but you know, what's interesting is I, I see my risk tolerance changing, tolerance changing, uh, but my enjoyment for anything isn't going down. It, it's changing as well. You know what I mean? Like I enjoy it just as much, if not more, um, even though I'm not maybe heading so recklessly all the time. Um, that's been an interesting yeah, absolutely. observation. Absolutely. I'm, I'm with you. Ben, we, we, we originally reached out wanting to hear about this uh, specific adventure you did, just kind of some details about it. Um, but you did this this first descent in Bhutan on this section of a river. And I just kind of want to hear about that, how that project came about, what it was exactly, and, and, and maybe why it was so meaningful to you and why it was so important to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, this, uh, this trip to Bhutan um, was... Uh, was put together by um, a couple that I have worked with extensively over the years, Mary and Phil Dereemer, and they own Dereemer Adventure Kayaking. And so I worked with them throughout the U.S. with these kind of raft-supported whitewater kayak trips going down all these classic runs like the Rogue River, the Middle Fork of the Salmon, the Main Salmon, the, going through the Colorado in, in the Grand Canyon. Um, and... Uh, but they also run trips in Bhutan and I'd expressed interests, you know, early on, Hey, I'm, if there's ever an opportunity to come over there, um, I would love to, to work with y'all there. And so, um, after a few years, uh, an opportunity did present itself and that Phil wanted to lead a trip, a really, um, extensive trip in Bhutan that started on the West side of Bhutan and 
you know, traveled through the middle of Bhutan all the way to the eastern side of Bhutan, uh, and then ultimately culminated with this first descent um, of the Kurichu River, of the lower Kurichu. At the time, Mary was not interested in paddling at the level that was going to be necessary to paddle all those uh, all those rivers, or at least she wasn't comfortable um, being in the role of guiding um, those trips. And so uh, Phil asked if I'd be interested. And recognizing that I hadn't been over there, my role wasn't going to be as much of a guide as it was going to be more of a, a safety boater and just a, an extra hand. And so, yeah, I, I jumped at the opportunity. And, and so this is back in 2015. And um, we had a, a, a really great quality group of folks that uh, just interpersonally, they were really, everybody jived socially. And then, uh, and then yeah, just we got to paddle in some absolutely amazing places. I mean, Bhutan is just uh, an extraordinary place. And so while the traveling throughout the, the entire country um, was exhaustive, you know, to be able to culminate with this, this first descent was something that was just kind of the the excitement that was kind of lying underneath the entire time it was the the end of the trip towards the end of the trip i guess um on a on a 16 day trip where this was uh day 14 that we uh that we launched on the curry chew and the logistics were complicated because we were starting obviously in bhutan but we were going to take off the river uh in india and so this this meant a lot of things for the folks that were helping us with our logistics. But for us, it meant, hey, we just need to go on the river and we have to get down to the takeout because that's where our buses, our passports, the whole nine yards are going to be. Uh, and so we got to the area uh, two days prior and we paddled a section of the Curry Chu that was uh, what we considered to be the middle Curry Chu, which was kind of a, a step down in difficulty from the rivers that we had been paddling for the past two weeks. And so more in the, the, we had been paddling kind of in the class four, maybe a occasional four plus range. And this was like class three, not very technical. And so we kind of thought like, hey, the lower curry chew, based on the Google images and all the info that we could get, we think it's going to be a step down. So it could be a pretty low stress experience for folks. Uh, and so when we our boats for the two nights that we were going to spend out there, um, we were feeling good about, hey, like this is probably going to be a little bit of a step down and uh, and we're going to see a beautiful place that nobody else has seen before. Uh, and so not long after we launched and got on the water, I started realizing like, hey, there's there's a little bit more going on than I think we, we all had uh, imagined. And uh, on that first day, just the difficulty just kind of slowly ramped up and up and up. And at the end of that first day, we had a real scare where we got to a rapid that um, from the top at initially, it, it didn't look like it could be run um, and it didn't look like it could be portaged. So it looked like we we could be in a real pinch. Fortunately, we were, we were able to find a way to portage around an unrunnable portion of the rapid. And then we're going to be able to slide in and paddle kind of the second half of the rapid. Uh, but still a, a very juicy, very challenging uh, rapid that we had to, to navigate that second half. And, and in that process, one of our participants flipped over and got pushed up against the, the cliff wall and just disappeared out of our sight for, for a pretty long time. And, and I, I, it's difficult to gauge the 
it's it's very difficult to gauge the length of time in a scenario like that, you know, because seconds feel like minutes and minutes feel like hours. And so I would imagine it was probably for about three minutes we we didn't have eyes on him or as a gear. And um and you know, the worst possible things are going through my mind oh, in that moment. Man. That's that's torture. It it was. And and from the position we were in, myself and Phil were were unable to get back up to be able to do anything. However, we we still had a uh, a Bhutanese guide, Tinley, that was with us, and Tinley was going to be the last one to go on that rapid. So he was able to scramble around on the cliff's edge and see down that uh, that this this participant had uh, he he had flipped over and gotten pushed into a just a very precarious eddy that was right up against the cliff that you know was very challenging for anybody else to. But he was, he was all, you know, he was out of his boat, but he and his boat and his paddle were all in the eddy. And so Tinley was able to, to help get him back up. But the challenging thing was that he had to run the rapid again because there was no way around it. And just fortunately, this guy had a, uh, um, a rock solid mind. You know, he just didn't like, he was able to stay kind of emotionally detached in that moment. And he just put back on, got in his kayak and peeled out of the eddy and, made the move just barely and we all had a, a, a good celebration when he got down to the bottom of the rapid but yeah i think that just that particular experience just ramped up the volume of stress and intensity and we were only into the first day and so fortunately that night you know we were able to find a camp just downstream from that rapid and we had a gorgeous night you know cooking over fires and uh and just you know able to kind of share share some excitement for the experience but um but there was a lot of nervous energy energy going into that day too what was worse is that our our, our Bhutanese guide Tinley ended up getting quite sick that night and he was really really sick I mean just uh you know food poisoning something of the sort that um really hindered his ability to to be a productive part of the group for the following day he was able to get down the river but he he was no longer able to to work as a, as a guide or any type of provide any type of safety component for the group. He was really just trying to take care of himself. And that second day Mason was, uh, was action packed. It was back in 2015. My memory is not spot on, but it felt like there were about 20, 20 plus rapids that were in the class four, four plus range. You know, this being at the end of a two week trip, the the guests on the trip were just gassed. And so I remember Phil and I having people walk around numerous rapids and then we would we'd kayak down the rapid and then we'd get out, run back up, kayak their rap their kayak down the rapid and then get them back in their boat. Or in some rapids we would just carry their boat around the rapid for them. Uh, and so this happened and happened and uh it was daunting and people were I think, you know, it being a first descent and the the unknowns that go along with that. Um, people were were definitely getting stressed towards the uh, the afternoon, and and I think that if if it couldn't have gotten worse, it did. When you know we hadn't we'd been in a very remote area, but all of a sudden you started to see uh, what looked like crews up on the cliff, and what they were doing is they were uh, blowing out the parts of the cliff in order to uh, to build a road that they've been working on for quite some time and so you know i have to scream down to phil at one point because he uh he didn't see what was going on just above us you know hundreds of feet above us but still above us 
where you know these these folks were just hucking rocks off of the cliff and uh, and so we were then trying to go from one side of the river to the next to avoid any potential rockfall uh but you know mason you know it was a trying day but we we ended up getting to the confluence um of the the Drogmechu, which was a, a known river for Phil. He had paddled that river a number of times. Um, and so once we got to the confluence, we knew what was ahead of us. We paddled for quite some time that evening before we, we got to our camp. But uh, the unknown and the most challenging part of the, the trip was behind us. And so there was a level of uh, kind of sigh, a sigh of relief. But yeah, I mean, the, there's so many nitty gritty micro stories within those two days but uh we woke up from that second night's camp and had a short paddle down and took out on the river left side which was india and yeah we had one night stay in india before flying out and wrapping up the trip wow i you know there's there's so much i'm curious about just because i you know i don't know much about this but you know a first descent is you know much like a first ascent in the sense that no one's paddled this route before and it probably started to feel hey there's a reason <laughs> it's a first it's a first descent with sure. uh, all this unforeseen thing so so can I ask you this were, were you really familiar with first descents at that point um you know obviously I, I imagine some of the challenges would be uh not really having a guidebook or not really knowing what to expect necessarily um I'm, I might be wrong I don't yeah. know no no I, I I think you're you're accurate like hey uh at that point in time, um, you know, I, I, I had, I personally had no known first descents. Uh, and, um, however, you know, Phil Dreamer, I mean, he's, he's such a mentor and friend of mine. I, I consider him family and he has just got the, uh, the most impressive, he and his, his partner, Mary have the most impressive experiences in first descents and exploration. And so it was really, his level of leadership and and just confidence that uh, that made me instead of kind of in, instead of feeling uneasy, I just kind of felt like, hey, I just need to rise to the occasion and and just be whatever support that Phil needs in this moment. And so, yeah, that that gave me a a lot of comfort in that in that moment or in those at that time. But yeah, the unknowns were were certainly the kind of the stressor. And yeah, there's only so much like you know you try to gain as much local knowledge as you can, but that particular area and stretch of river had no roads. And, and so there was very little local knowledge that we could pull from. And so then we're looking at Google Images and Google Earth and trying to, to get as much as we can with satellite images. But uh, depending on the time of year that those images were taken, um, it's really hard to gauge, you know, hey, what's, what's this going to look like? Is that a rapid? What's that going to look like? And, and so, yeah, it just... Uh, more than we bargained for, but at the end of the day, was not beyond what the trip was marketed as, which which was a relief, you know, because if we had had people down there that were way um, outside of their comfort zone, it would have been a big stressor. But but the folks that we had, while while maybe some fatigue like led to them walking around rapids, uh, most of those rapids were straightforward enough that folks could the folks on the trip could have gotten down. Um, had they been fresh, but yeah, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things going on, you know, at the end of the trip, you're in a different country and then you're on a first descent. It's uh, yeah. And one of your guides is very ill. And so th there's a lot of stressors going on. 
No kidding, man. That that does sound stressful. And so, if I, I like you're saying, a, a few of the people there were essentially clients, so you were in in charge of their safety and well being, and, and a lot of their logistics, and having to take that on yourself uh, on a first descent. That's tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you know all the all the credit goes to to Phil Dreamer. I mean, he's uh, an absolutely amazing trip leader and guide and instructor, and I. You know, I just, uh, I think I looked at him after we got to the confluence and finished the the lower curry chew. And I just said, you know, I think this was probably the most significant moment in my outdoor leadership, paddle sport guiding, like all, all these different roles. Like this was one of like one of the, if not the most significant experience of my career and life like this, it was, uh, it was an enormous experience to reflect on and to try to pull learnings from because there were just so many i i can imagine you know you know was would you say this was for all your experiences um unique in a way involved certain things that, that other trips did not it was it was unique being a first ascent and and the fact that you know professionally you know being in charge and taking people down as a part of a first ascent was certainly outside of the the realm of normal for me and yeah i think you know I, I think that now that experience is kind of unique because i'm you know just through where i'm at with my own work is that i'm seldom the assistant and i'm more the lead so it's like i i have to really be on top of my game because i i, I don't have that absolutely amazing mentor to look up to in that moment i i have to be that person and so uh and so it just makes me really stay sharp and so that it was a unique experience on a number of fronts. Was there anything you learned on that trip that you uh, you didn't want to repeat? Maybe like, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. I, I don't think so. I mean, that, that trip was day to day. There were small stressors. I think it made me check my own like professional tolerance for risk. Like, hey, am I, do I feel comfortable taking people on first descents? And, and, you know, for me, like, because of my limited experience, you know, pursuing first descents, that, that answer was no. Like, hey, I, I'm all on board. Anytime Phil Dreamer wants to do something like this, I will be his, you know, right-hand man whenever. But for me to, to be in the position of, a, of the designated leader, that was something I said, yeah, I, not until I, you know, increase my, my first descent resume a bit. With, with whitewater kayaks, you know, there. If anyone isn't familiar, and and again, I don't know much. You can correct anything I say wrong. They're just kind of those snub nose looking kayaks that are real short, maneuverable. Uh, but you, you guys were touring, so you were taking all your equipment with you, your camping gear and your food. Um, I I don't see that a lot. I don't see a lot of people traveling in those. You know, there's 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 a thing called touring kayaks that I'm more used to. Uh does it change anything logistically or, or maneuverability wise when you're carrying everything yourself? Yeah, absolutely, Mason. So yeah, the you're you're absolutely right. Like whitewater kayaks can vary in length, but generally, you know, whitewater kayaks are kind of in that, you know, eight to, to ten foot range, uh, or at least the kayaks that we were using. And uh, they have a lot of rocker, meaning that there's a quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of bow to the bottom of the boat, so that there's the boat has less boat down in the water, which makes it more maneuverable. 
Um, as such, it does not want to paddle in a straight line very much. And so you, you really have to work to, to paddle it. Where, you've got to paddle it where you've got to drive the boat where you want it to go. Um, but you're right that they're not designed per se for at least the boats that we were using were not designed per se for these kind of self-support kayak trips. Um, however, through thoughtful planning and figuring out, you know, how we can uh, divide up group gear and and food and the like, uh, and then being really thoughtful about how we pack the boats, we're able to do that. And so the 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 boats certainly as small as they are are heavily affected as soon as you put weight into the uh, into the ends of them. And so the challenge is like being thoughtful about your weight distribution and trying to really focus weight towards the center of the boat um, as much as possible. But absolutely, they 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 definitely. Uh, paddle a bit differently when they're loaded down with a little bit of extra weight, which yeah was a was another added uh, stressor for folks um, as we navigated some of these rapids. What were some of the misconceptions about traveling somewhere to do an adventure? Because you know, from my experience, every time you, you got these maps, you're you're planning, you have this image in your head of what the place is going to be like and what the people are going to be like, and never is the reality even close uh not not in a good or bad way it's just totally different than your than your imagination was was perceiving it um was that the experience you had out there or had you had experience out there before i i i had not had experience in bhutan before but you know i've i've been able to travel enough to just you know for my personal experience is often that you know by the time i you know find a a kayak to buy in a country by the time I figure out like the use of a vehicle or something of the sort and figure out the details of getting to a river and the water levels that need to be at, you know, that need to, to work. I find that it's so much easier just going to a, a center, a, an outdoor center of some sort and, you know, being able to work with folks there, you know, because for me, I guess if you've got an abundance of time, you can sort those details out yourself. And I think that it can be more economical to do that. But if you've got a small window of time, you know, your, your time is your money. And so you just, you want to maximize your time as much as possible. And so um, I think in those moments, just going to an outdoor center and trying to get, you know, renting a kayak and trying to get your logistics worked through that center, it might cost a little bit more, but gosh, if you, if you've got a limited amount of time, then, then that's, that seems well worth it from my experience. And that's what the folks on this trip to Bhutan, these folks that were paying us, you know, they had a limited amount of time. I mean, just getting to Bhutan and then getting back home is going to take a number of days. And so, you know, they didn't have the, the time or the resources to kind of figure things out on the ground. So, you know, they, they hired the outfitter that we're, that I was working with Dreamer adventure kayaking to essentially have all those details ironed out. And then, so for me, Having worked with Phil and Mary for years uh, within the U.S., I, I knew exactly what I was going to be walking into in terms of just professionalism and expectations around lodging and so on and so forth. I, and so there wasn't a lot of surprise outside of just visiting a new country. But I tell you what, I mean, Bhutan is just uh, an absolutely amazing country to visit. I was, you know, the, the people were so welcoming, so thoughtful and sweet and uh and I, you know, I absolutely loved it. Was there any unforeseen dangers, uh, you know, kind of like your story with the the mountain lion and the, and the bear? 
uh, that that wasn't involved in the water. I know the blasting of the road was, you know, you, you can't even plan for that. Like, how, you know, but it's obviously a huge danger. Uh, was there anything else like that 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 pops up or, or tends to pop up with with water based trips like like you've experienced? In Costa Rica, like my my guard is always up for poisonous snakes. Like I, mm. I just, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, I, I've seen them so many times there that I know they're around and I know they can be big and they can be aggressive. And so I, I'm always hypersensitive to, to snakes in Costa Rica. But I tell you that, that, that last night, that second night on that, uh, on that first descent in Bhutan, um, at that point, you know, we'd gone, finished the lower Curry Chu and we were on the Drong Machu which is, you know, a known, known river for, for Phil and for, for other folks. It's a, it is a, a river that's paddled somewhat often for camping. And I mean, at this point, we're like in like the tropical jungle. We are in tiger country and that was known. We are in tiger country. And so, you know, we were camped up on a, on a beach on the side of the river and we've got a, our tarp set up and a, a number of us are sleeping under the tarp and we've got a, a little fire going and, you know, in the middle of the night, I wake up and hearing, hearing some sort of a growling and a moving movement in the, the kind of the, the tree line. And I just, in my mind, I was just like, all right, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to go, you know, trying to, trying to mentally coach myself from, uh, for an interaction with a tiger, which I would have never prepared for, but I'm still rehearsing in my mind, like, okay, you're going to go grab a log from the fire, you know, trying to, essentially emulate what I've seen on Hollywood movies. But, uh, but yeah, fortunately our, our Bhutanese guide, Timley started throwing rocks out there. And I was like, Timley, you know, what are you doing? Like, Oh my God. And he's like, Oh, it's a, it's a barking deer. And so what we thought was, (laughs) you know, a a tiger looming in the, uh, in the tree line was, uh, was an innocent barking deer. So yeah, it a pleasant surprise in that regard. Dude, that is funny. Just, that's how it is, man. Out there in the woods, out there, you know, I'll be sitting out there and thinking, you know, some huge animals in in the in the in the leaves, and it's a it's a lizard or something small. And think, yeah, exactly. What was I? It was just yeah. totally quiet, and it totally magnifies the effect. And I'm I'm dramatic as it is, so um, <laughs> it it was a tiger, you know. <laughs> I'll turn it into that. But that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's funny, man. That's so funny. So, so you know, coming back home and and. Uh, kind of just continuing your career and life forward. What, what, what do you think the biggest lesson was you learned from that experience in Bhutan? I think that Phil just modeled so well what, uh, what leading a, just a, an amazing trip look like, you know, just from his, you know, social engagement with every participant with, and, you know, his, his just genuinely, thoughtful communication with all of the the Bhutanese folks that we worked with um, and just his ability and leadership on the water. I just way thinking like, wow, that is my mental model of a, of a whitewater trip leader. And so that's, I'd say that was one of the most significant take homes. Um, I think for me, it reinforced like, Hey, like I, you know, reinforced the value of having, um, a high level of tolerance for those, you know, adverse moments of like, Hey, like, you know, there's a lot of unknowns that are going down that are going to have that we're going to experience downstream. I just couldn't let myself get wrapped up in it. I just had to stay in the moment and, and just try to be a, 
a model for the guests. And, uh, and yeah, I think that it just reinforced the value of that characteristic of tolerance for adversity. You know, what, what do you have going on now? What, you know, what are some things you're doing, looking forward to? I know kids change a lot of things for folks, but, uh, you know, what, could, could you just talk about how life has been since that trip and, uh, yeah, how people can find out more about you and maybe join you on one of your adventures? Oh, yeah. So, you know, my my family and I recently relocated to Vermont. So we're uh, we're living in the Green Mountains just outside of Waitsfield, Vermont, on the on the Mad River, which is uh, an amazing place to be. We're we're absolutely loving it. Uh, and so nowadays I work mostly for myself. Uh, I have a small business, Precision Paddle Sports, and I stay busy between providing, you know, private instruction for folks that just contact me um, that have very specific interests, um, as well as doing, I do a lot of work with local colleges, um, providing staff training, as well as working with the college students. Um, And I I travel around and I teach quite a few American Canoe Association instructor workshops. And so I do that for whitewater kayaking, canoeing, and paddleboarding. And I just finished one for stand-up paddleboarding here in Vermont this past weekend. Uh, and so, yeah, while I, um, I, and as well as I also lead trips down in Costa Rica, this this year we're taking a break from it just for, for one season, but we plan on getting back after it uh, in 2021. And, uh, and so those are whitewater trips in Costa Rica. Fantastic. How experienced do you have to be to, to go on some of these? I'm sure there's there's a threshold. Yeah, you know, I I just find that uh, the trips that I lead in Costa Rica, I I tend to to lead the 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 most full throttle trips possible, and and you know very quickly realize like I actually I don't really have the tolerance for for this type of risk uh, for to put people in and be in, in charge of other people in th- these types of environments, and so the we we ask folks to to have a reliable kayak roll. And to be comfortable in the class three environment um, for the trips that I lead down in Costa Rica, and then certainly if you're interested in, in more difficult uh, paddling, more difficult whitewater down there in Costa Rica, while it it wouldn't be on a trip with me, the the folks that I work with down there are very happy to personalize um, people's experiences and trips down there. Awesome, Ben. Well, great, man. I'm going to plug all that. And make sure folks know where to find you and where to find out what you're doing and some of the things that, uh, some of the adventures you could bring some of the listeners along with. Um, but yeah, man, I know, I know you got a, a little one at home. I know I do too. And you know, maybe, maybe close to bedtime. So, uh, I'm going to let you go, but thank you so much for jumping on, telling your story or, you know, one little tiny story out of just probably the thousands you could tell. So I, I appreciate you diving into it a little bit and, uh, just, telling us what you've learned from your experiences. It was, this was really fun. Mason, I, I really appreciate the opportunity and, uh, yeah, just thank you so much. Awesome, man. Well, I'll let you know forever up there. I'd love to, love to connect. You seem like a, just a great teacher. So I, I'd love to learn from you. Uh, any, anytime, uh, take care and, and thank, thanks again, Mason. Yes, sir. All right. Talk soon, Ben. I'll let you know when this comes out. All right. Thank you. All right. All right bye. Bye. First of all, 
thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.